0: The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson. Now Katie, one of the big stories of the weekend is the row that's broken out over Labour's policy on the two-child benefit cap. Tell us about what's going on here.
1: So this is another Keir Starmer U-turn. As some are disputing this as a U-turn, um, as it said, it's confirming what the hints that the policy would be. But ultimately, Keir Starmer gave an interview on Sunday to Laura Koonsberg in which she asked him whether a Labour government would keep the two-child benefits cap, and he replied um, that uh, he was not changing that policy as things stand, uh, ultimately suggested this was due to the economic situation. To cancel out that policy, to axe the cap, um, is expected to cost just a, a little over £1 billion, and I think the reason it's striking is because you don't have to look far to see things that members of the shadow cabinet have recently said about how awful this Tory policy is. So the current Work and Pensions Secretary, Jonathan Ashworth, has been very clear that he thinks you know this um, policy is uh, approaching evil. The idea that this policy helps move people into work is completely offensive nonsense. But what's more than that, which I think has been uh, less noticed, is his predecessor in the role was Jonathan Reynolds, and. Um, he spoke at the Labour conference in 2021 when, of course, Keir was leader and said that it was part of Labour's plan. He said under Labour's plan, scrapping the five week wait, ending the benefit cap and binning the two child limit it would mean that uh, half a million fewer people would be in poverty right now that's the difference Labour can make safety and security for you and your family so if that was spoken about at Labour conference and um, by the person in brief it feels as though they have gone now away from that as a policy I think there's probably what, why are they doing it um first off I think there's an interesting report by the Fabian Society which found that voters actually back the current policy they tend to and therefore is there a slight voter messaging in here I think potentially but I think the larger thing here is it's another win for the shadow treasury and as Rachel Rees tries to make fiscal responsibility responsible spending become before anything else whether that is green spending or also in this case um, something so many Labour MPs want to do on benefits you were seeing that uh, Rachel Rees grip uh, is, is winning over those it's clearly led to lots of unhappiness over the weekend. Lots of anonymous angry MP quotes going around saying, you know, what is the point of a Labour government if you're not addressing child poverty in a way lots of them, you know, so they entered Parliament to do. It does mean, I think, that although Keir Starmer's saying this, would he actually be able to, uh, you know, keep the policy in place in a Labour government? I think in a way it's a bit of a reminder that if you had a Keir Starmer government with a majority of 20, I think a policy like this you would see a big rebellion on.
0: Now Fraser, what message does this send about Labour's stance on welfare?
2: The major message it sends is how serious Keir Starmer is about winning. One of the strange things under the Tory years was when they did their welfare reform, the welfare crackdown, Labour went mad and they were saying, this is Tory cruelty, we're going to get Ken Loach to make a film about how evil these all are. But the voters loved it. It was probably the most popular reform that David Cameron did. And it was, is most popular amongst was the target voters who now decide British elections, the, the Red Wall people. The, the bit effectively and crudely put, those who are working on low wages tend to feel a sense of great injustice if they know a family over the streets who have got more disposable income in spite of doing less work. It feels um, horribly unfair. And the Conservatives would say to those, look, we are the Workers' Party, we're going to cap. Um, Obviously we know that you, somebody working on a, a lower than average wage, think you can't afford to have three kids. To have three kids, even by the way, if you're middle class is quite a, it's, I wouldn't quite call it a luxury, but it's expensive. You need a certain house of a certain size, you need income of a certain size. And a great many people in this country feel they just simply cannot afford a family like this. Now, when you apply those dynamics further down the scale, you get what the Tories, and it seems Keir Starmer, diagnose. As a sense of injustice amongst those who think that the system should not be paying for workless households to have more than two families. Now this sounds incredibly cruel. It sounds heartless even saying these words myself. It's um you think God oh, this this is quite you know, you're effectively telling the people in benefits how big their family can be. That's incredibly dictatorial and heartless however there's no doubt it, it, it pulls very strongly so here you've got another Keir U-turn but it's being done yet again as most of his U-turns are he's you turning towards public opinion especially that slice of public opinion that is likely to decide the red wall seats and obviously everything is the fiscal imperative as well this costs uh, expanding welfare in this way would cost a lot of money money that Starmer is painfully aware that he doesn't have so i imagine that the tories are a little bit worried about this because they would like to present themselves As being tough on, for example, the small brutes, tough on migration, and the purveyors of hard love welfare reform, and describe Labour as being um, soft on welfare, soft on immigration, and soft on small boats. Keir Starmer is making it, he's presenting a harder target for
0: them, put it that way, in that regard. And talking of U turns, Katie, before we come on to Ben Wallace, just wanted to ask quickly there was also another moment in that Laura Koonsberg interview yesterday where Starmer appeared to suggest that Labour wouldn't stick to the 2% inflation figure for the Bank of England, which now on this Monday morning, we've seen a bit of a, a U-turn on. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, Quite quickly after this interview, I think uh, Labour sources said, oh no, that's not what he meant to say. So I think, in a way, Keir has got so used to, perhaps saying we're not making decisions right now, we're not writing the manifesto, we're not going to say what we're going to do. One of the things he also wouldn't commit to is that a Labour government would spend more than a Tory government. Now, I think most people will presume a Labour government will, despite what he says. But therefore, you think that perhaps when it came to inflation, he was just so stuck in his way of saying things, perhaps didn't quite understand. But yes, they've been very clear, just as I think um, it makes sense, just as they don't want to make any spending commitments, which I think could be attacked by the Tories at the next election, to say... Increased borrowing under Labour is going to make this situation even more painful for you, which we've seen the Tories do on the green energy, which they're now watered down. They also obviously don't do anything that suggests that they are going to be uh, taking a different approach than the most orthodox one with the Bank of England or on inflation. So benefits one big story. Ben Wallace, why is he going now? Well, Ben Wallace's seat is no longer going to exist at the next election. So had he wanted to stay on as a future MP under the Boundary Commission, he would have had to go and get another seat. Now, given he has been the most popular member of the Cabinet League table for, I think, almost approaching a record time, I don't think he would have struggled to get a different seat. But I think it obviously means you get to a point where you're making an active decision. Because you might sound silly, of course you make a decision to be stand, but you know, you'd have to do various things if you wanted to hang around. Now if Ben Wallace wanted to be leader, he could have gone for that before. He has uh, twice now chosen not to. And um, despite the fact, lots of people said he had a really good chance as a grassroots favourite. Do
2: we know why, Katie? It always seems to be a bit mysterious. Why? Here was Ben Wallace, as you say, topping the members' poll. The grassroots can't get enough of him. He seemed to be the person who's fared so well with his judgment in Ukraine. And yet he never puts his Russian hat in the ring.
1: Well, I think there's a few theories. Effectively, he says in the interview he gave at the weekend that one of his children asked him, you know, actually asked him not to go for it. And that's partly because of the scrutiny that would come of being a leadership candidate. I think that you come under far more scrutiny, both in in terms of all aspects of your life, if you're running for leader, as compared to just being a, a senior member of the cabinet. I think that's something that has put him off, and at least put members of his family off him taking that jump. Mm-hmm. And therefore you ask yourself, um, you know, why Why is he leaving? Well, I think in terms of standing down, you can't help but tie a little bit to the fact there is a Tory exodus going on at the moment. with Lots of MPs choosing not to fight the next election and a sense that they're not going to win the next election. In terms of why he's stepping down from the cabinet, I think that, as I understand it, he thinks it makes more space to clear up some room for uh, Richard to have a defence secretary who can appear in all these debates and conversations and talk about what a future Tory government could do, the one who is stepping aside. And also, I think, um, to go from being defence secretary to not even being in the Commons, I think this is a slight, you know, walking into that um, so it's not as drastic when it does come. I think at the next election... Defence could be a really big issue, particularly if you have a situation whereby Donald Trump is the Republican candidate and looks like he has a chance of winning the US election. Given his comments on Ukraine, you can start to imagine a feeling across the continent here of needing increased security. What's going to happen if um, Ukraine war ends in a way that... the? um, UK government does not want and therefore I think it's one area right now where the Tories still lead is actually on Ukraine and so I think who Rishi Sunak picks as the next defence secretary will be quite important.
2: If I were Rishi Sunak, I would have moved heaven and earth to stop Ben Wallace doing what he's just done. Um, As you say, Katie, the Tories have got a lead in defence. We don't have a lead in much else. That's because they have in Ben Wallace somebody who called out Putin long before anybody else quite worked out what he was planning to do. It was Ben Wallace rather than Boris Johnson, who decided to arm Ukraine uh, before the Russian invasion. He's got an incredibly good track record. He's an example of how ex-servicemen can apply their knowledge to do well in this Rule. If you're Rishi Sunak and you want to say at the next election, look, my team is simply more experienced, more competent than Labour, this is no time for a novice, then you'd present not just yourself, but your front bench. Having Ben Wallace as Defence Secretary to present as somebody who would put the country's safety at a time of when Europe is again at war in safe hands, that would be a massive benefit to you if I were just to you I know, like I said look first of all I'll find you a safe seat Ben secondly we need you to stay on and present the continuity card as pretty much one of the only good cards the Tories have got left to play and of course now I was saying this to um, a cabinet member recently saying look I can't work out um, why Ben Wallace was allowed to go and I was told look you need to work out this as a cycle of life. It becomes a stage in politics where people like Ben Wallace want to look beyond it. He's still relatively young. He can still go off and have a second career in industry. People want to do this. They're not going to become martyrs to the political cause. Now, on a personal basis, I do understand that. But I would have, you know... Of course, you know, there... You could probably earn he could probably earn three or four times in the private sector what he's earning now as a cabinet member. But still if I was Sunak I would have um, you know, got him to promised him a job post politics advising Sunak Enterprises, being paid whatever BAE could possibly <laughs> offer him or something. You know, just to because to, to, you need that strong team. You need somebody with that credibility. And whoever it's going to be, people are talking about Tom Tugin Hatteram, Amory Trevelyan I don't think they would still have the, the gravitas which Ben Wallace, who was a plausible candidate for NATO, would have given the lineup. So when Ben Wallace quit, quit my first thought was that makes a Tory victory even less likely at the next general election
0: remember the role that Michael Fallon used to play going out in 2017 and uh, talking about defence etc against Jeremy Corbyn, very useful in the morning media rounds.
2: Yeah it was great Farman Fallon they called him because he was able to put out any kind of fire, in voice reassurance and Wallace is one of the longest serving defence secretaries normally that's like a non-job that job because if if defence gets serious the Prime Minister calls the shots so you could have like a little furry mascot as defence secretary, nobody would really care but in Wallace you've got somebody with high approval rating amongst the party and the public a serious, I've, I've known Ben Wallace since he was in the Scottish Parliament and I was a reporter up there he's one of the rare examples of somebody to have come up through the, the ranks of regional parliaments to um, to national ones and I, I can understand he wants another chapter of his life I just think it's a shame that for the Conservative Party anyway that they couldn't have done something to keep him in Team Rishi
0: at the time of the next general election and finally, Katie, there was a row about inheritance tax over the weekend. There were briefings in the Saturday Times that it was considering. Uh, the Conservatives were considering uh, scrapping inheritance tax for the next election. And then the Sunday Times, uh, these ideas were shot down. What's really happening here?
1: So the inheritance tax debate has been playing out for some time. <laughs> Specific meetings, obviously, have at different times, but it has long been the case that there are blockatory MPs who would like uh, either inheritance tax cut as an offer in the next election, all for inheritance tax to be abolished completely. Now, it's an argument the Treasury has been hearing for a while, and I remember having a conversation... I think probably like a couple of months ago with some in the Treasury, and they said, oh, it's a tricky one because there's a, there's a pro and a con. The pro from the number 11, number 10 perspective is that they take the view that this is not an inflationary tax cut. So you often hear, oh, we can't have significant tax cuts in the next election because they will be inflationary. You're hearing that a lot. So the priority is inflation, so income tax, calm down, don't get too excited with inheritance tax the argument goes it doesn't actually put that much money into the economy because a lot of it's in assets it also isn't um uh, a tax cut that would kind of affect that many people, but yet they believe in focus groups. Lots of people feel it's just something a bit unfair about it. And uh so often MPs will say, oh, oh it's best for the blue wall. But there's also an argument that the voters in the red wall also think you should, you know, aspiration, you should be able to keep the money you earn. It's a double tax, you'll hear. So those are arguments for it. Their argument against, of course, is what does it say? You know, is it progressive? What does it say about? the Tory party if they were to do it does it suggest the Tory party is looking after its own I think it's an interesting one for Rishi Sunak which is if Rishi Sunak were to abolish inheritance tax given he is the richest prime minister ever to be in number 10 does it suggest or help Labour say he's looking after their own or actually do lots of voters across the country go that's quite fair and I think this is why no decisions have been made as far as I know but that is why you hear this debate that's been going on for a few months now about if you've got so few levers to pull on tax at the next election partly because of inflation is this one you could do if they do do it there will be a backlash I think the question is if we get away from the angry and you know attacks you'll get including from some on the Tory side what would most voters think
0: and the conservative growth group last week launched a paper on this very issue as well as probably in the news Fraser your thoughts
1: um, Ross Clark, our colleague,
2: wrote a piece uh, for the website yesterday saying that this would be a policy that would make him vote Labour. If the Tories were to be so in hoc to the asset-owning classes, I myself have written a cover story referring to the assetocracy about how so many Tory policies now are geared towards those who've got assets to protecting them. If you look at the um, the, the complaints about the so-called dementia tax, that was all about people getting to inheritance stuff. Um, abolishing her- inheritance tax is very popular. If you've got assets or if you stand ready to inherit them. There are a lot of families who don't have assets approaching that threshold and stand zero chance of inheriting anything of significance. I would far rather income tax for workers were cut. But an inheritance tax for those who've enjoyed the the fruits of, of the asset boom of the last 15-20 um, years so I think it, politically it would be um, I'm not quite saying that I would vote Labour in the same way that Ross Clark would but I can see why somebody would, would think that way because it does, there are so many injustices right now and the biggest injustice I can think of are the number of people on out-of-work benefits that could be working, they need help, tax on Labour needs to be reduced and we need to, to put our economy back together before
0: we start worrying about who gets what in inheritance. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Katie. And thank you very much for listening to Coffeehouse Shots.